we're in Galatians 5. Uh, don't have a lot of the book left, but we've been through uh, the, the analogy between uh, Hagar and Sarah. I don't actually remember if we finished that last time, but I'm going to pretend we did and move on to chapter 5, if that's okay with everybody, and we'll go on for there. So some things about freedom today, which actually apply uh, for some of us to what I preached yesterday, which was about Christian freedom um, and preaching about Moses' veil coming down from Mount Sinai um, and so forth. So I'm just going to start reading. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm them and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So this is the kind of freedom I actually, I'm just going to retell the story I told in the pulpit yesterday, which is of some boys I knew as a child who hoped that the school would burn down because they thought that they would then they would be, it would be like summer vacation forever and and actually, uh, there, there's a lot of flaws with that because there, um, I, I'm sure that our parents would simply have sent us to a different school. Um, and there was, um, I have since learned, a school just a few miles away that had only the year before been closed. So it was, it was the, the old Arlington grade school. So fully functional kitchen, library, classrooms, brand new paint job, and everything, and it and it wouldn't have been that far away. And we so if our school had burned, we would have we would have had a place to go to school. But but uh, I should I should say they um, anyway. Us. Um, uh, but the imagining you know that you don't have to go to school when you're a kid uh, misunderstands the freedom that it that like a regular education brings with reading, writing, arithmetic knowing things that I learned in, in, in elementary school even, like how to swim, how to use a saw properly, how to respect um, uh, a router. Those are things that I learned, you know, even, even in fifth grade, sixth grade. And uh, how, to, how to use a kitchen. We had home ec as a required class when I was in, in, in school. And, um, and then, you know, science and history and social studies and these things. And, and they... They open up a world to us that would not be open to us if we didn't have that education. Also, the, what we thought of as the burden of the school gave us our friendship in the first place. It gave us our fellowship. And, the, and when you think about the, 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 the slavery that not having an education gives is the slavery to a life with no opportunities. You know, how many jobs can you have? You know, if you don't even have a high school education or a GED or what have you, um, there is a weird thing in our culture where if you have a bachelor's degree, you can excel considerably. But if you've gone up a level and gotten a master's degree, the opportunities go down. But then if you have a doctorate, they go back up again. So there's, there's a weird little dip for those of us who only have a master's degree. And, you know, and I, I would have been better off stopping, you know, or, or, or whatever. But I mean, wouldn't, I wouldn't have the job that I have, however. But, but uh, that's a curiosity. But with our Christian freedom, you think about the, the slavery that one is under who doesn't have faith. Because on Judgment Day, I wrote about this this morning for a, a different reason. Um, when uh, on Judgment Day, when we stand before Christ in the last judgment, what are we judged on the basis of it's the gospel. Jesus tells us in, in, in the Gospel of John 
we're judged on the basis of the gospel entirely for freedom. An unbeliever has removed himself from the gospel and has brought the law back down on himself. So he's judged according to the law. And we're not. We're judged according to the gospel. And then we even participate in the judgment. In um, uh, One of the dogmaticians has four separate things that, are, that Christians will, will actually take part in the judgment, mostly with our witness, our Christian witness. Like if, if you can imagine yourself being held up as a witness against, say, the Antichrist. You know, here's this person, God will say, who lived a life of faith versus the Antichrist who rejected all that and taught against it. And so that, you know, really, we're a little bit like the weights on a balance scale. Kachunk, you know, you get put on the on the scale and boom, Antichrist goes flying off into hell or however you want to picture that. But, um, uh, and then uh, one, of the, one of the Lutheran dogmaticians, I think it was Johannes Quenstead, who, who says, we will, we will assist Christ in little tasks. So I don't know if he pictures off as like a page in a courtroom, like, hey, run this over to the spirit for me. Okay, you know, do that. I don't, I don't, I don't really know about what, he, what he had in mind there, but he, has, but he has passages with all of them. But. So freedom, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free so that for one thing in heaven, we are completely free without a care in the world. As, as judgment day dawns and you set your feet on the soft green grass of heaven, um, completely carefree for the rest of eternity. Um, but in this lifetime also, we are free to actually begin to obey God with, the, with using the, 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 the law, the Old Testament law, as a guidebook rather than, as I've called it, a book of mirrors, just showing me my sinfulness, but rather as a guidebook. Like when um, I'm, I'm teaching one of my sons to drive right now, and he gets behind the wheel and he sees a couple things, the first thing he learns about is the curb. Don't go above that, up on, you know, keep off of my lawn, kid, you know, and, and uh, that's what the curb is, to, to hold society in check. Um, but then there are the mirrors. And I'm not blessed with, 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 with girls, but I'm led to believe by others that sometimes girls think the mirrors are there just to check their makeup <laughs> and things like that. But the mirror shows me what's wrong with me. That's the, really what the mirror is. My mother had a mirror that was um, concave, is that right? And it, like made your face really huge when you looked in that mirror with special lights and stuff like that and really showed the flaws, you know. Uh, um, and But the third use of the law is the law that's only there for the Christian, which is as a guide. How can you, which and for a, a, a driver is really all of the signs on the road that say things like, um, uh, you know, speed limit. Go ahead and drive anything up to that. And then, or, or the street signs, or the green signs that tell you what's in each town. You know, is there a Hardee's or isn't there? You know, all, all the, those important pieces of information. Can I get gas here or not? And those, those, are, those, those signs tell us where we can go, and the law tells us where we can go and how we can observe um, and fulfill God's law. Verse 2. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Now, uh, um, 
if you if you miss the beginning part of Galatians, this is kind of a, a shock to you. But Paul is using the idea of circumcision because there were people in Galatia, in this S-shaped area in Central Asia Minor, who were insisting that in order to be a Christian, you had to go backwards into the law and come through the same door they had come through, which is the law of Moses and circumcision. And these, these folks who Paul refers to as, as twisting the gospel, so I call them gospel twisters. I think others would call them Judaizers. But they're, so they're these um, people forcing Christians to act more Jewish um, are saying you've got to be circumcised. And Paul says, if you let yourself be circumcised because they tell you you have to, you've put yourself under all of the law. So all of the dietary laws, all of the sanguinary marriage laws, which means you can't marry anybody closer than this or that person. There's a whole, there are whole chapters on that in Leviticus and the dietary laws too. Leviticus 11 is nothing but unclean animals. You know, exactly which birds can you and can't you eat um, and, uh, and, and, and fish and animals and so forth. And which would, some of it surprises people because it's, it's a lot more forbidden than just pig. You know, because basically any of what we would call shellfish are off the menu. You know, so lobster and crab and crawfish and uh, what, bullheads and shrimp and all of that stuff. And with, with some of it, after reading what they actually do eat in the ocean, I'm like, I, I'm, not, I'm okay not eating them. But, uh, but some of them like bullheads and things I grew up eating and I would kind of miss them, I think. But I'm okay leaving squid though off the, off the table. Um, but uh, but there, are, there are more laws than that even though too because there are laws that, 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 that dictate how many times you have to go to the tabernacle you know, and make sacrifices and all of those things as well. Um, and uh, and, if, if you're, uh, and if somebody kills your brother, you have to go kill them. You know, there are all kinds of things that we'd be uncomfortable with that are there in the law, but we're freed from the law. And Paul doesn't want us to be obligated to obey the whole law. <clears throat> Verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. To, to be alienated from Christ is to be removed like a foreigner from Christ. You have nothing to do with Christ any longer. Um, the idea of from uh, removes us. Uh, from, from everything to do with Christ. Just as a little bit later, we're going to see the word in brought back in. Special preposition in Greek because it brings you completely within the sphere of a thing. If you're in, you're completely in and none of you is without. That's, that's an important concept grammatically. Uh, verse 5. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Hope is kind of a surprising word here, isn't it? Hope is, uh, in our culture, is uncertain. Am I going to get it or not? You know, I hope uh, my sons remember my birthday this year. You know, eh, no, but, but uh, here in the text, when Paul says hope, um, he's saying it's certain, it just hasn't happened yet. So it's a completely different idea. Than, than our concept of, of hope. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The hyphen is there because it was formatted differently once. Um, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So neither, for, for a Christian, whatever happened to you when you were little, circumcision or uncircumcision, doesn't make any difference. What, what counts is faith expressing itself through love. Um, I know that when uh, many people in our generation were, were, were born, circumcision was um, inevitable in many hospitals. I mean, it was just taken for granted that that's what would happen for uh, hygienic purposes and so forth. Today, it's a little bit more of an option because people are a little bit more proactive about no way to everything, you know. Uh, so, but it used to be pretty typical. So uh, we've come this far, really, in Paul's letter now. We've had this personal issue where Paul's apostleship is authentic. We've had this doctrinal issue now where freedom from the law, with, with freedom from the law, rather, and faith in Christ. And now we are moving into this third section of putting your liberty and your faith into practice. This is now the practical. And um, I'm just going to mention that the word practical and practice in Greek are, are that, that's actually a Greek word. Praso is, is to act. So proxice is the Greek word for the book of Acts. Um, anybody here a Star Trek fan? Remember the name of the Klingon moon that blows up in that one Star Trek movie? It was practice, praxis. Um, where the Klingons were doing all this work and coal mining or whatever they were doing, and it blew up and, and stuff like that. And uh, that's praxis, the, which is acts, or, uh, or, or to do, put something into practice. All right, enough Star Trek for now. Although, can there ever be enough Star Trek? Let's just move on. You, okay, I'll try to bring, I'll try to get Dorothy or later. I'll try to remember that. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. Let me ask you just a quick question. How many of you remember the last time you heard a pastor mention sports in the pulpit? I do. Yeah. Pastor, Pastor Alehoffen. What, 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 what Viking, sport was it? Viking quarterbacks. Viking quarterbacks. What did you guys have? Uh, <laughs> Were you at MLC? No, at MVL. At MVL, okay. The Super Bowl. Okay. Okay. Can I just ask, uh, especially you two, when's the last time you heard me make a sports reference in a sermon? I try to stay away from it as often as I can. I, I, I occasionally bring something if it really fits. But uh, I do try to stay away from it, partly because so many of our congregation members don't know anything about whatever sport it is, and so I, I try not to... Um, to not, so on purpose, I, I actually talk about opera more often than I do about sports, um, which I figure... This will leave everybody behind. You know, if I do this, and therefore it will be all be equal across the board. So why not talk about opera? I, um, anyway. But here Paul brings up, and Paul likes to talk about a couple of sports. Uh, Paul, I, I think that Paul had been to the Olympics. I mean, the ancient Olympics. And uh, you get the impression that he was really into certain sports. He especially running and boxing. 
So Paul is into those, and he'll talk about boxing in 1 Corinthians, talks about running here in Galatians and, uh, and things. And so you're running a good race, and he says, who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That's a running expression. You know, that, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. And persuasion might be a kind way of saying cut in on you, like I can, I can kind of see that being used in Formula One race racing. Like I persuaded him to let me buy, you know, that kind of thing, um, and so forth. I had an uncle who actually drove. Um, what are they called? The drag racers. A car that's longer than this room. You know, a long, thin car, and yeah, and uh, dragsters. He, we had uh, grandpa and grandpa's farm. Grandma and grandpa's farm had Quonset huts, which are those curved, you know, sheet metal, corrugated metal things. And he had dragsters in one of them. He had one that was always ready and one that was there for parts, basically. And uh, once in a while, he would start the engine and let us little kids be in there, and it was deafening. But he would he would carefully fold his parachute and all that kind of stuff. So, And now he's in Arkansas, and I believe he has his dragster in his living room. Beautifully pristine white carpet, you know, and there's... There's his dragster, his his baby, you know. He's I mean, my uncle Roger is now in his eighties or late seventies, but that's uh never married. I'm not sure a wife would permit that, but uh as the showpiece, you know, that of uh, uh, Volkswagen maybe in the den, but the dragster in the living room, that's gonna go. So Well, who who is who cut in on the Galatians to keep them from obeying the truth? Well, Ultimately, it's the devil. And I want to talk about the devil's two hats. So there you've got them. Um, uh, you have the, the Greek word diabolos, diabolos or liar, um, which is his one name. The devil lies and lies and lies and gets us to, and he's really wearing that liar hat until the moment when one falls into sin. And then he throws off the liar hat and puts on the Satan hat. And that's Satan, that's that other word, which is accuser. And actually the word Satan in Hebrew also means prosecuting attorney. You'll see that show up in some books of the Bible where there is an accuser, like in court, and you go before the accuser. That's the Satan. That's the, that's the, the opposing counsel. Well, that's also the devil's nickname. Thus, the Satan, the accuser, who I like with a capital A accuser, um, who was always, so he, he lies and lies and lies. Oh, go ahead. Everybody's doing it. You'll feel better. It's up to you. It's your body, your choice, all of these things. And then the moment one sins, oh, how could you? God's never going to love you ever again. You're never going to get out of this. You should be terrified. You should be scared. And of course, he's right. We should be terrified and scared. But is it true that God will never forgive us and love us? No, that's what happened to him. That's not what will happen to us. Um, but those, but then he just goes back and forth between those all the time. Or he goes back and forth between those and setting that up. So he's he's never not working against you. And there are times where it seems like he doesn't have anything to do in the whole world because there aren't, aren't any believers left. And you and I feel like we got, just got a big old target painted on our back because the devil's got no one else to work on today. Um, and so uh, be wary of that. 
Another thing about the devil before I leave this passage, although it isn't in this passage, but it is in kings and other places in scripture. The devil and the other angels cannot read your thoughts. The devil doesn't know everything that's going on in your noodle. Okay. Now, he, he's, he has a good memory. He's crafty. He's quick. He knew your grandparents, you know, and he tempted them. So he's known you your whole life and he's tempted you. So he's got a pretty good idea of what works with you at least and where you're going, but he doesn't know everything. Okay. So when you're praying, if there's something you want to pray about, I, I like to say a lot of my prayers out loud. I say my Lord's Prayer. I, I include the Apostles' Creed. Um, some, some weeks I drift off the rails and I, I finish up in the Nicene Creed for some reason. But, uh, and, you know, and then I, 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 and then I might say, my, now I lay me down to sleep and the God blesses afterwards. And there's a whole string of prayers that takes, it's usually long enough that my feet are cold. You know, sitting there on the edge of my bed before I before I scooch into under the covers, but there might be something I want to pray about that the devil doesn't necessarily know about. Something that's on my mind. Why let him in? Why let him know? Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, the devil can hear that. And, and when I'm thinking about things, and then yeah. You know, Yeah. Yeah. The devil. The devil has microphones better than the Gestapo had had uh, microphones. I just have a question. Uh, you, you have Diabolos in Greek and Satan is Hebrew. Hebrew. Did the Hebrews have a word for liar that they used, and did the Greeks ever call him the accuser? Well, you do, you do have Satan occurring all over the New Testament, Satan, just in in Greek letters. So they transliterated the Hebrew word. Okay. The name for the devil in the Old Testament is only accuser. They don't. They they call him Satan, but he's any any, any and uh, uh, or or um, enemy. So those are kind of the you know the the, the fall the, the evil one, enemy. the The idea of the devil as liar. The concept is there in the Old Testament, but the name doesn't show up until. New Testament times, for whatever reason, and the the word Satan is really unique to uh, Job, Genesis, Zechariah, just a couple. Otherwise, he is the enemy. He is the evil one, the wicked one, that that kind of thing. And he's mentioned a lot more in the New Testament than in the Old. He's there in the Old, but you know. Did they have that concept of of liar? I think so, yeah, yeah, because you're also you're also getting that um, not just as a New Testament concept, but um, after Alexander the Great's conquests in the three hundreds, um, he established the city. He established cities called Alexandria everywhere. Ooh, it's the city of me and new country, and this is the city of me. He, there are all kinds of Alexandrias everywhere, and Alexandrettas, little Alexandrias everywhere. And in the Alexandria that's in Egypt, which was the biggest one of them all, um, there was a library. And they made it one of the wonders of the ancient world. The, the Library of Alexandria had more volumes than any other, and, and maybe more than most other libraries combined. This vast 
storehouse of knowledge. And that's where the Septuagint was translated from Hebrew into Greek. Um, so they, the, the story is that they took 70 scribes and had them translate and in a certain number of days, they all came out with the same translation of Genesis. I don't know if that's true or not. But they did work hard. They did work faithfully. And they did come out with a very good translation of the Pentateuch. As you go um, down in, in, the, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, the quality diminishes the further along you get. It's strange. But the guys who worked on Moses did a fantastic job. They are to be commended as translators. The guys, and I think it was a separate set of guys, the guys who worked on the historical books, um, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, those, and Esther and things, they did a pretty good job. Um, the guys who worked on the prophets and some of the books at the tail end, sometimes they have no idea what they're doing. And the the however... What you end up with is a, is a unique testimony to what the Hebrew text says because they're almost, without any regard for Greek grammar, they're just translating word for word what the Hebrew says and then what it would say in Greek. And it's just gibberish in Greek, therefore, but it's a testimony kind of to what the Hebrew text is. So as you work your way through the Septuagint, you have a very different document at the end than you had at the beginning. It's a fascinating study, you know, of where does the transition, you know, happen? Well, it happens really pretty much after Song of Solomon and right at Isaiah 1.1. That's where that last transition happens, where everything after that is kind of garbage in one sense, but gold in another sense. Um, so that... It's a, it's a curious, it's the, the study of textual witnesses in the Old Testament is a fascinating study. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.